Those of you who were here last week for the sermon and the worship, and those of you who were still awake during the sermon, <clears throat> you will remember that we met the siblings, <clears throat> Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, in the 11th chapter of John, the chapter previous to what we read today. This week, Martha and Lazarus make cameo appearances once more, while Mary stands center stage and commands our attention and our attention. John tells us neither the reason for their gathering nor in whose home it took place, saying only that it took place in Bethany where Lazarus lived. The translation we read this morning <clears throat> says that Beth Bethany was the home of Lazarus, which is true, of course. But the Greek and most other translations say, rather than it was his home, they say that he lived there. And I think John is very intentional about saying he lived there. Given the fact that he had died there and Jesus brought him back into the land of the living, he lived there. Informed Bible readers will recognize that all four Gospels give us an account of a woman anointing Jesus but with some strategic differences. In the verses we read this morning, John says the woman was Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Since Martha is serving, we assume that the setting is very likely their home. In Luke's gospel, the anointing took place earlier in Jesus' ministry and he identifies the setting as the home of a Pharisee and the woman as a sinner who washed Jesus' feet with her tears before anointing them with her kisses and with ointment and drying his feet with her hair. Matthew and Mark specify that the feast took place two days before the Passover in the home of a man called Simon the leper who lived in Bethany where an unnamed woman anointed Jesus' head. Because of these differences, some contend that these accounts describe two or perhaps even three separate events but others point out that it seems very coincidental that within four days, John says six days before the Passover, and we've heard that Matthew and Mark say two days before the Passover, that within this four-day span <clears throat> at two separate dinners, <clears throat> excuse me, a woman would show up at the feast to anoint Jesus' feet 
and they suggest that the 40 or more years between the occurrence of this event and the writing of the Gospels, that some of the details were not remembered with exact preciseness. They were indistinct in their memories. John's Gospel contains the kind of details, however, that we would expect to be remembered by an eyewitness. So it's very likely that Jesus was invited to dine with both his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, to celebrate with them, and also with Simon, who had been a leper, presumably whom Jesus healed, Was he also a Pharisee? We don't know, but it does seem likely if these four Gospels describe one event. On the other hand, they could describe two events that took place within a four-day span. This much, of course, we know, that this anointing took place by a woman whose heart was opening to the Savior and whose anointing was an act of worship. Some might say, but doesn't this seem like a contradiction in the inspired text? Well, Baptists have always maintained that the scriptures are God-breathed. They are inspired by God. But here is where Southern Baptists took a hard right turn during the 1980s and 90s and moved off into fundamentalism and left me and many others behind. Their understanding of God-inspired means that every word was dictated by God's Spirit to the Bible writers, and anyone who doesn't agree with him, with them on this, can't be one of them. I, on the other hand, am one of a host of others who believe that God-inspired means that God caused the message they were to preserve to well up within them, and he caused them to write these messages down, but he left to the writers to choose their own words, to rely on their own memories and their experiences in describing them. Well, that having provided more background than you probably bargained for when you came to church this morning, Let's leave the background and move to this setting. Let's join the celebration in the home of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Family celebrations are joyous events, aren't they? Recently, our son took and passed the exams to become a certified financial planner. That night, We celebrated. I'm talking 
helium-filled, smiley-faced balloons. Connie prepared an elaborate meal, cake and ice cream for dessert, the works. No doubt you are recalling similar family celebrations of your own. Well, imagine how we would celebrate if one of our family members had died but was restored to life. They don't make mylar balloons big enough to cover such an awesome event. But as Jesus and the disciples had returned to Bethany and were here in the home of their friends, they simply could not, not celebrate. You what I'm, hear what I'm saying? A celebration had to occur. It, it was too much of a thing to ignore. How could they have just pretended it didn't happen? They had to celebrate. Lazarus himself was one of those reclining at the table that night. For reclining is how they ate at the table in those days. The diners reclined on their sides, usually on their left sides, on a couch with their feet trailing away from the table. They leaned on their left elbow, which left their right hand free for feeding themselves. This has always seemed to me a very awkward and uncomfortable arrangement. But it was the custom in those days. I've imagined that it was all the walking they did that kept them thin. But it may be that after leaning on their left elbow for several minutes, they lost their appetite. It would hurt after a while, at least my elbow would. So they would get up and leave the table and maintain their weight. I have tried to put myself in Lazarus' place to hear the questions he must have been asked to try to describe what it was like to hear the voice of Jesus as though from a great distance. A voice calling and commanding and compelling him to enter his dead self and come out of that tomb. I wonder, as the meal progressed, how many times Lazarus was asked, what was it like? Well, his answer is not recorded. But as he ate, as he looked, <clears throat> as he looked over at Jesus, did the, <coughs> excuse me, did the sheer sense 
of wonder at what had happened come spilling out of his eyes and flow in a steady stream down his cheeks. It must have. Let's think about Martha. No doubt she planned an elaborate meal for this occasion. That's what Martha did. That's how she showed her love. Several months ago in a sermon about the sisters, I theorized that if Martha had had a last name, it probably would have been Stuart. As in Martha Stewart, you, you get that. No part of this celebration had escaped her attention. From the lamb chops to the napkin rings, she had it all under control. She loved doing this. It's what she was gifted to do. But more to the point, she loved doing this for Jesus. It was her way of showing her genuine affection, but her service spoke of much more than mere friendship. Her love was not some romantic notion, not some feeling of giddy, heart-palpitating, tongue-tiedness. No. The depth of her love and gratitude could find expression only in worship. And her worship expressed itself in her service because words simply could not convey what her soul wanted to say. Since that wonderful day in the cemetery, when she and the others welcomed her brother back to the land of the living, she had wanted to do something to say thank you to Jesus, to praise him, to value him, in short, to worship him, preparing and serving a meal to Jesus and his followers was so simple, so inadequate in her mind, yet it was all she could do, and it was what she did best. And don't you imagine that Jesus saw beyond the delicious entree and the dishes of condiments don't you think he saw into her heart and heard exactly what she was trying to say through the gravy? And then there was Mary, who sat at Jesus' feet on an earlier occasion and listened to his words when he visited their home. Mary whose own heart had been set ablaze by the heat and light and power of Jesus' words as he described the kingdom of God and then 
on that occasion in the cemetery when he called forth Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. Since Lazarus' resurrection, she found no words that could even begin to express what was in her heart and mind and soul. Unlike her sister, however, she found, like some of us, kitchen duty not a delight but a drudgery. No, her love and gratitude would have to find another way to express itself. Then it, it occurred to her. Her most prized possession was the ointment. The Bible does not say how she came by it. Although the translation we read this morning has Jesus saying that she bought the ointment for this occasion, there's a footnote that says, in the Greek, it says that she kept it or saved it for this occasion. The Greek and most other Bible translations say simply that she saved it. You notice that parents seem not to be a part of the family dynamic, leading to speculation that they had died, leaving the siblings to look after one another, which might explain why Lazarus' death was so devastating to these young women. I wonder if the costly perfume may possibly have been a gift from her parents before they died. If so, we might imagine what a treasure it was to her and how sparingly she used it. It was the most precious thing she possessed. Yes, that would do, she must have thought. I'll give that to Jesus, but not, not as a present, but, but as an offering. She would anoint his feet, his most humble parts, with this precious gift. And I wonder if drying his feet with her hair was premeditated or whether it was a, a spur-of-the-moment afterthought. At any rate, not only did she anoint his feet with her most precious possession, but she then wiped his feet with the most glorious part of herself, her unbound hair. Is there not for us a lesson? A lesson in our worship when words are not adequate for what is in our heart. It is our service, our offering that gives expression to what we cannot utter. 
Gloria Gaither captured the essence of this offering in a song entitled, Broken and Spilled Out. One day, a plain village woman, driven by love for her Lord, recklessly poured out a valuable essence, disregarding the scorn. And once it was broken and spilled out, a fragrance filled all the room. Like a prisoner released from his shackles, like a spirit set free from the tomb, broken and spilled out. Just for love of you, Jesus, my most precious treasure, lavished on thee, broken and spilled out, and poured at your feet in sweet abandon, let me be spilled out and used up for thee.